I was just seeing the video of Bangladesh. When I went to Bangladesh, it was in the summertime. <laughs> it's very different from winter, because winter is cool, but in summer, it becomes the hottest place on earth. And so I, you know, I have a brother here named Roy that came with me during the summer trip, and I will testify that it is hot in Bangladesh. Um, is, you, know, that, you saw that picture of that boat? You guys took that boat right across that river? Oh, that's beautiful. Be Bangladesh is it's a beautiful country. It's amazing. You go everywhere. Everything is so beautiful. But like, I think literally 70% of the country is all these villages. Um, there are all these villages that you know, people live in like, by like 30, 40 people. And then in the, the, the city of Dhaka is where like, the main city is. And as you go out, there's these small cities. But still, the majority of the country lives like, like they did back in the days. No electricity, you know, no real running water. And you go, and these people are just so hungry for Jesus. They're hungry for something that's real. That's what they're looking for. And, you know, when you go there, you know, it's, it's funny because they have a lot of cultural religion. They have Hinduism and Muslims kind of mixed into one. It's because long time ago, some people came and told them to believe in this. And then they've been believing in this for so long, but they have really no idea. They don't... You know, they probably don't even read the Quran. You know, they probably don't have any kind of idea what, what these Hindu deities mean, but they just continue to worship them culturally. And so when we go there with something real, like Jesus Christ, man, they respond. And when we went, you know, I think we recorded like 1,500 salvations. People were just committing their lives to the Lord left and right. And just an amazing testimony. Cambodia as well. You know, our, our brother Noble and uh, Jen went to Cambodia. And um, a lot of great testimonies coming out of that country as well. Uh, I see that Tina's here. Hi. I, when, when you first came in, I was like, man, who is that? I seen her somewhere, and I remember oh, I was in a wedding with her. When, uh, when my, uh, our friends, Diddy and Hewan, they got married. So welcome. What are you guys doing here? Visiting? Indonesia. All right. From Indonesia? Um, I moved to Korea. Oh, you moved to Korea. All right. Up in Seoul? Nice. Nice. Well, good seeing you guys here. Um, today, I'm going to be continuing my series from the book of Acts. Um, I really don't know how long this series is going to be. Because I'm just getting into chapter 2 today. Uh, but as I've been studying this, this book, and I've been really studying it, I realize how important it is to church planning. Um, and how important it is to just being a church and developing the church and advancing the church. And as a, you know, a new pastor, as one, uh, one that's uh, just taking on this task, and I think it really is divinely, it's a book that God really divinely chose for me to really study in depth. Because I'm getting so much out of it. Uh, my first sermon on the book of Acts started way back uh, a couple of months ago at Friday Fire. It was about um, how the disciples were asking the wrong question. You know, for all these years, for three years, Jesus was asked, teaching them about the kingdom of God, kingdom of God, um, about the kingdom of heaven. But in the disciples' minds, they were still thinking the old ways of Jesus as the Messiah being a political a ruler. And so you know, they asked this question as, will you at this time restore the kingdom back to Israel? And, and this was after Jesus had died and resurrected from the dead, and they were still in this wrong thinking. And then so many times, even in our lives, even after Christ has, you know, we give our lives to Christ and we still, we're living his life for him, sometimes we too ask the wrong questions. We don't look at things from the kingdom of heaven perspective, and we start to look at things from our own perspective and the perspective that, that we have based on our own flesh. Um, that was my first sermon. My second sermon was uh, how Jesus told us to wait, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. It's because without the power of the Holy Spirit, there's no way that we're going to be able to fulfill the mandate and the commandment that he gave us to be his witnesses 
to the, to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And how this power, the power of the Holy Spirit, mixed with the testimony of Jesus Christ, is what's going to really advance the kingdom of God upon this earth. Um, last week I preached my third sermon from the book of Acts, and it was really pertaining to the waiting period. You know, Jesus told him to wait, and he took off. And in this waiting period, you know, theologians say it's about 10 days. And in that time, they were not waiting, just sitting around, you know, playing Monopoly deal or, or whatever. But they were, they were sitting, they were, they were actively waiting upon the Lord. You know, they were in prayer. They were in the Word of God. They were in fellowship. They were in obedience. I mean, they, these were things that, that, that they were doing as they anticipated the coming of the Lord, coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, and today we're going to uh, cover the passage in Acts that a lot of people, to them, it's their favorite passage from the book of Acts. And it comes from Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. So if you turn in your Bible, let's turn to Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. Okay? So if you're there, let me hear an amen. 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 <clears throat> so let's read. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to, re- appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jeru- Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is this that we hear, each of us in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phygera and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. You know, when we look at the account of what happened at Pentecost, we can clearly see that it's God's ultimate plan. His ultimate plan and purpose for the birth of the, of, of the church. You know, what happened to Pentecost, it was like, it was the beginning of the church. And we can see it now because we have this thing called hindsight. There's a saying that said, that says hindsight is 2020. I mean, so like, now when I think back on it, I'm like, oh yeah, you should have done that. Or, didn't you see that coming? No, don't you hate it when people say like, man, didn't you see that coming? Um, but for, for the, for the disciples, it wasn't so easy. But they were following Jesus for three years, and Jesus was teaching them all these things. But it never, he never said, like, you are one day going to be the church. And, you know, like, it was never really clearly conveyed to them that what all this was going to lead into. And for them, they thought it was going to be this political rule, political reign, that Jesus was going to take the throne, and that they were going to be part of his kingdom. And so for them, they couldn't really grasp the big picture because they were thinking and seeing things based on their own perspective and many times based on their own understanding. You know, they couldn't see this coming. But for us... Now, we can see it because it happened thousands of years ago, and we can clearly see the step that God was taking. Uh, My favorite movie is The Shawshank Redemption. Who's seen this movie before? Okay. If you haven't seen it, spoiler alert. Okay. 
I saw it when I was in prison. It was about a prison. Uh, I saw it with a bunch of gangsters and hoodlums. And, uh, and they were, and as they watched, they were all captivated. And you know, these grown men with crazy tattoos, some of them got really emotional and some of them actually cried. Um, but it's about this man named Andy Dufresne. And he's, uh, uh, he, he gets sentenced to life in prison for killing his wife, which he did not do. You know, he was falsely accused. And, uh, and in the midst of all the pains and the hopelessness of prison, he comes up with a plan. He comes up with his ultimate plan. And so he befriends some of the close friends that are in prison. And with this plan, he tells no one. But little by little, through his good friend Red, prayed by uh, the, the Morgan Freeman, you know, you know, he starts to carry out this master plan. He asks for stone-cutting tools, and he tells people that he's making chess pieces. And he asks people to, to he gives them dirt, and then he asks them to get him rocks, you know what I mean, so that he can make these chess pieces. And he actually makes chess pieces, you know. And then later on, he asks Red for this big poster of this girl. I think it was Rita Hayward. And then, and then he's saying, like, I want the poster of this. And so they think that, oh, you know, he's a man and wants to look at, you know, pretty girls. So he actually gets them this poster of Rita Hayward. No, and through the many years that he's in Shawshank Prison, he sets up for this ultimate escape. And one day, he finally escapes. Okay, that's a spoiler alert. He escapes. <laughs> and uh, Red receives a postcard like down the road, giving him directions on what to do if he's ever released from prison. Um, up until that scene of the escape, nobody sees it coming. Like, man, if, if you're watching the movie for the first time, you don't really see it coming. But then as... As the, the, as the movie goes on and you realize, you get this flashback of all the things that he was doing for the past how many years? I think it was like 10 or 15 years that he was in prison in, 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 in culminating to this one escape. And it's this, it's this, it's this amazing, like, tale that, but you don't get to really envision it until that moment when he escapes. And it reminded me of what, of the planning that God did in regards to the church. Through the, his, throughout our history, throughout the life of his son, Jesus, this plan all along was started way back for the beginning, from the beginning, to birth the bride of Christ. The, the disciples never saw the full picture. They never saw it coming. They learned about what to, what to do from Jesus. They learned how to be you know, Jesus, to love, to have joy, to have peace, to have humility, to have faith and holiness. And all the lessons that they learned, from Jesus, but I believe that it wasn't until Pentecost that the whole picture came to revelations for came to revelation for them. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit Himself released upon His people that they were able to see the plan that God Himself had orchestrated from the beginning. And it wasn't until Pentecost that they fully understood their identity and purpose. When identity and purpose comes together, it becomes a calling. And for the disciples. It was at Pentecost that they were, they have found their calling. There's a lot of purposes out there. And when that purpose comes together with your true identity, it becomes your calling. It becomes what God wants for you. And it, it became what God wanted for the church. For these disciples, God wanted them to be the church. So today we want to take a closer look at what exactly happened at Pentecost. Okay? You know, Pentecost was God revealing the bride of Christ to the church and to, to themselves and to the world. When the Holy Spirit came on the, the 120 people that were gathered there, the followers of Jesus, they got a full revelation of their identity and calling. 
And it was for themselves. You know, at that moment of Pentecost, they realized this is what we're supposed to be. All of this that Jesus was talking about, it all leads to this. This is us going out into the nations. But it was also a revealing of the bride of Christ to the world. And when we study what happened, we can see the intricate and the perfect timing that God had for this moment. Okay? So let's look at that time, timing. Okay? Jesus comes to earth as a baby. Okay? When he comes to earth as a baby, he gets God incarnate, God becomes flesh. He grows up like any other kid, any other son of a carpenter. But when he comes of age, when he's about 30 years old, he gets baptized. And he starts, to, to, he starts his ministry by raising up 12 followers. He starts teaching them, along, along with many others, uh, what, to, how, what to be, how to be like. He t- teaches them about the kingdom of God. He starts instilling upon them values, character, wisdom. And they will, need to, they will all have to know these things to be the bride of Christ. He performs many signs and wonders, miracles, okay, to show them the nature of the kingdom of God. He teaches them about repentance and faith, what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. And then he is crucified. He's taken, he takes upon him the sins of the world, and three days later he's raised from the dead, and that day was Passover. He was a sacrificial lamb for the world. Passover begins the Jewish celebration that's called the, the, the Feast of Harvest. It's also known as the Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of Weeks. And it's called the Feast of Weeks because it's how many days in a week? Seven. So it's like seven times seven. So it's 49 days. Thank you, Lydia, for the math. So it's, it's the Feast of Weeks is for 49 days. And then the 50th day, they call it the day of uh, the, the final day, it's called Pentecost. Okay? And it was the equivalent of the Jewish Thanksgiving of the Old Testament. It was called the Feast of Ingathering also because peop- Jews from all around the world they all from all parts of the world, they were scattered. They were like in different areas. I read to you from Acts all the countries that they were from. And these Jews all spoke different languages from the different places that they lived. But they at this time was them they were all gathering in Jerusalem to take part in this feast of weeks. And we read later on in the passage today that that as these as these uh, Jews came to come together and they were speaking all these different languages, it was like the perfect moment. It was a gathering that God was orchestrating. So he had an audience. He had this audience of just people that came from all these different places in the world. It was like Steve Jobs gathering tech geeks from all around the world to introduce the iPhone. You know what I mean? And how that, that, that introduction will go to the places that they came from. They were like, man, this phone is amazing. This is a part of what God has orchestrated for the birthing of the church. And after the Holy Spirit comes upon his people, they all start to speak in different languages. They all start to speak in different tongues. And the revealing of the church would be more relevant to the people that are outside in the world. Why? Because it was the most effective way to do this. Jesus, you know, when you look at the life of Jesus, he also did this too. He would go to Jerusalem in times of celebration because it was when all the people had gathered. And Paul himself, in Paul in Acts 20.16, he says, For Paul had decided to sail east past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So, you know, Paul would actually go out of his way to go to Jerusalem 
on these days of celebration so that he would be able to get the biggest audience. And it was so that there could be the greatest assembly of people and could be the most effective. That's God's plan and timing for all of this. You know, he, was, he was timed it. He orchestrated it. From the beginning of time, he, he's been working out the story of birthing you and, you and me, birthing the church. Let's move on. When we read the account of what happened in the upper room with 120 people, it's a little scary, right? You think about it, we're all praying. Is imagine if all of us were in here, we're praying, we're, 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 we're worshiping the Lord. All of a sudden, there's just winds are going, <laughs> and shaking the room. We're like, oh, what's going on? And fire starts breaking out. Starts landing on our heads. It's a little scary. If you read the accounts, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each and one of them. Is this the same Holy Spirit that gently landed upon Jesus when he was being baptized? And I say it is. It's the same Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus so gracefully when he was being baptized like a dove. And it was the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And it's the same Holy Spirit that came upon the disciples like a mighty wind that shook the whole building, and the tongues of fire fell upon them. Now, John Calvin explains this well. He says, for as, for as the figure and shape of a dove which came upon Christ had a signification agreeable to the office and nature of, Jesus, of Christ, so God did now make a choice of a sign which might be agreeable to the thing signified, namely, that it might show such effect and workings of the Holy Ghost in the Apostle as followed afterwards. This is all in kind of old English, so it's hard to follow. But in other words, the Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus was enough to signify the office and the nature of Christ's ministry. But the, the same Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in the form of this mighty wind and the fire to signify the attributes of the Holy Spirit that would be working in the apostles as they became the church. And I believe that God did this for two reasons. The matter in which God manifested himself at Pentecost in this powerful and almost scary way was for two reasons. The first reason, the violence of the wind and the tongues of fire was scary, not just to scare the apostles, but to humble them. He did it to humble them. Whenever we come before God to receive anything, we have to come humble. We have to humble ourselves before the Lord. John Calvin said in a quote, we are never rightly prepared to receive the grace of God unless the confidence of the flesh is tamed, unless we humble ourselves. We have access to God through faith, but it's humility and the fear of the Lord that opens the doors to that access. And disciples had to be humbled before the presence of the Holy Spirit before he could work inside the lives of the disciples. before the Holy Spirit of God himself. And you know what? Power encounters like this not only transform people's lives, but it humbles them as well. When you look at people that have these amazing experiences where God touches them mightily and powerfully, and you talk to them afterwards, the first transformation that you'll notice is that they're humbled. I want to mention my friend Diddy. When I first met Diddy, he he was like... Kind of arrogant. 
He still kind of is to me. But I remember he, he went to the Andreas Pisoni crusade. And, man, he got rocked by God. He was like, ah! He was all crying. Snot everywhere. And I remember he was on the ground for like a good 15 minutes. And when we came up and I started to hang out with him again, I realized that, that God had humbled his heart. And it, was, it was weird to see it. He, he, God had really humbled his heart to the point where, yeah, when we hang out and when we're playing, you know, he's a chashik and whatever. But, you know, he, like when I would talk to him seriously, man, his heart was humble. And that's what happens when we have an encounter with God. He humbles us. And we need to be humbled to be able to have that access with our Lord. And so the, the reason why it, the Holy Spirit came with so much fire and wind and power was to humble the disciples. The second reason that it happened in this way was for the disciples to be sure that what they received was from the Lord. That the change that came upon them at Pentecost was not by chance. You know, it was not by their own volition. It was not by anything else but the power of the God Almighty. They had to know that what was happening to them was for something that was so much bigger than them. That it was for the purposes of God. And for the, it was purposes for the ages to come. You know, in John chapter 20, 22, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples, showing them his pierced hands and his pierced feet. And it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It wasn't an earth-shattering experience. It was just a breath. It's very different from the, from the Pentecost experience. And many theologians say that the disciples received the Holy Spirit at that moment, like we received the Holy Spirit at our salvation. It was the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. But something totally different happened at Pentecost. It wasn't just a breath. It was a mighty wind. It shook the building. It was marked with power. And it was because God was marking them. He was marking this moment. He wanted him to know that this was God. This is me. This is me empowering you to be my witnesses, to testify, to be the bride of Christ. Like a rushing wind, like a mighty inferno to the nations, to the end of the earth, you're going to go like this. They were baptized by the Holy Spirit. And it was the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's when God gave him that power. Jesus talked about that power. That when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And the, the disciples knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that what happened on the day of Pentecost, this empowering, this sudden change, was all from God. It was from the Holy Spirit himself. They had to know that. And some of us have had experiences like this in our lives. And some of us haven't. Some people get skeptical about people that shake, when people fall. They get skeptical because, you know, it might not happen to them. Some people think that, you know, that they're faking. And if that's you today, it's all right. You're entitled to your opinions. I'm not here to convince you. But if you're someone that has never experienced this, but you want to, you never felt this this crazy baptism of the Holy Spirit, but you want it. And I want to tell you, go after it. Cast out that skepticism from your mind. 
and go after it. You have to hunger for it. You have to contend for it. You know, the disciples that were waiting for the Holy Spirit, they weren't just waiting around playing games. They weren't spinning dreidels and singing that song. They weren't like playing Kai Bible, man. They were contending. It said they were, they were praying. You know, they were, they were seeking them out in the word. They were worshiping him. They were actively waiting and seeking for him. And that hunger needed to be there for them to be able to receive. And I'm telling you, if you're one of those people that really want to experience it, go after it. Come to Friday fire. Come to Sunday swim. Cry out to God. Say, God, I want to experience this. Because God will satisfy that hunger in you. You know, if you hunger for the manifestation, manifest presence of the Holy Spirit, if you thirst for it, if you seek it out, if you contend for it, God will encounter you in that way. You know, you might not shake. You might not fall. Because, you know, Pastor Christian has made a lot of people shake and fall. He never shook and fall. I've never seen him falling before. It all depends on your personality. It depends on, you know, what kind of temperament you have. All, all kind of different things. But when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will know it. And you will know that it's God. And you will know that it's God empowering you to do something so much greater, so much more powerful. It's the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And the key is your hunger. And it also is the key is your humility. You have to humble yourself. You can't come to God with all this pride. Like, God, I don't know if this is real, but do it. Do it. I'm going to feel it. Man, you you got to humble your heart. Once you're humbled and you really d- develop this hunger and thirst for the things of God, God will satisfy that in your life. You now, many Christians, especially the ones from the Pentecostal denomination, Look at what happened at Pentecost, and they focus mainly on the phenomenon of glossolalia, or the speaking of tongues. And don't get me wrong, speaking in tongues is biblical. You know, we are a tongue-talking church here. Even today at Sunday Swim, we pray for people to receive the gift of tongues. You know, it's very important. It's your prayer language. God gave it to you as a gift to, 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 to pray harder, to pray more, you know, to, 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 to pray through you. It's a gift that we all need to contend for. But I believe that it wasn't the focus of what happened at Pentecost. No, and if you know, if you want to know our position on the gift of tongues, Pastor Christian, he preached a, or an amazing sermon like not, not about three, four months ago here at Seaside Campus. If you want to listen to it, you can find it on our podcast. Um, it's all free. It's all there for you. Can you listen to? You get a, get a better understanding about, about the gift of tongues. Though tongues is important, it's not the main point of what happened at Pentecost. It wasn't so that people would speak in tongues. But it was God fulfilling his plan in birthing the church, in birthing the bride of Christ. And tongues was just a part of how he did it. You know, all these people were gathered from all around the world and speaking all these different languages. And it was this moment where God could... Show the world and show the church that this is his bride. And it was to be able to spread it throughout all the people that came from all the different nations. This is a picture of what the church would go on to do. To be the salt and the light of the nations. Not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, but to the ends of the earth. 
all different languages, all different cultures. Cambodia, Bangladesh, Malaysia, throughout the, throughout the world and throughout time. This was God was orchestrating for the bride to do. And it started at Pentecost. And for us believers, we have to see Pentecost not as this one day that happened, but we have to see it as the beginning of something that is still going on today. The Holy Spirit is being poured out on all flesh now. It was being poured out on all flesh then. And all the times in between, God has been pouring out His Spirit. And we got to know that this is God bringing us into what, what started on that day. He's starting, He's continuing to do it through us. I want to move on and say that that's not the point of my message today. It's kind of like my introduction. We have time, though. Don't worry. It'll go, it'll go quick. When the Holy Spirit fell upon the people of Pentecost, there are two characteristics and symbols that are depicted in the coming of the Holy Spirit. Okay? The, the Spirit was depicted as gentle as a dove in, in, when Jesus was there. The Holy Spirit is gentle, and it's true. He's a gentleman. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. I've grieved him many times with my offensive humor. And I've had to apologize many times. He's a gentleman. He never pushes. He never pressures. He always leads. That's the, that's the, that's a holy, that's one nature of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the only characteristics, characteristics of the Holy Spirit. We see in the accounts of what happened in Pentecost a whole different side of the Holy Spirit. It's not a different Holy Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit, just manifesting a different way. So let's look at these attributes. And we narrow it down to two symbols. Wind and fire. And so what do these things symbolize? Wind and fire. What came at Pentecost was a rushing wind. It says, it was a rushing wind. Filled the whole room. Shook the whole room. And in Greek and Hebrew, the word for wind is synonymous with the word spirit. They actually came up with the word for spirit by, by, by coming up with the word for wind. And it's also the word for breath. In Greek, it's called pneuma. It's where we get our word pneumatic. When we have a pneumatic tool, it's a tool that's powered by wind, by compressed air. In the Hebrew, the word is called rah. I think it's pronounced rah. And you can't pronounce it without actually making that breath sound. My wife says I, I did that, that, that the sound comes from me a lot when I sleep. I, I do snore a lot. But you can really, you clearly see that even the words that, that, that is used for the Holy Spirit has built into it characteristics of wind or breath. In John 20, John, Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to the disciples with a breath. In Ezekiel, his vision, he tells about the glory of the Lord was like a storm, wind, a whirlwind coming from the north. And to get a better understanding of what this wind symbolizes, let's turn our Bibles to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis. Genesis comes after the table of contents. It says Genesis 1. This is the first verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit, that word, which also means wind and breath, 
The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What the disciples experienced in the upper room in the form of a mighty wind was the Spirit of God himself, which was present at creation. In essence, it's the breath of God. It's the breath of life. The creating, moving, dynamic breath of God. It's his life-giving breath. This wind of God that was blowing across the waters at creation. And this was also the breath that God used to speak the earth into being. He created everything with, with a word. With his words, he created everything. It's the breath of God. A, a, a chapter later, when he creates Adam, he says he, he breathed into his nostrils the breath. And Adam came to life. Adam became a living being. The symbolism of wind that we can draw out of the account of what happened at Pentecost is that, is that of life. The Spirit of God brings life. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3 that in order to see the kingdom of God, one must be born again. And when Nicodemus asks Jesus, you know, how am I going to be born again? You know, when am, am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb? How is that possible? And Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That, that which is born of the flesh and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you this. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or from where it, or where it goes. So it is with anyone, everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is talking about this new life. The new life that comes from the Spirit of God. In John 6, 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you is Spirit and life. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. Romans 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And the mighty wind that came and shook the room at Pentecost. It's the very breath of life that comes from God. That created the universe. That gave life to Adam. The, the, the wind represented at Pentecost is, 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 is breath. is God's breath. It's life. New life. And it's more important than original creation. Because original creation will eventually pass away. This earth will pass away. But what was started and continues to go on at Pentecost, is eternal. The life that was, that was, began at that moment when Christ was raised from the dead and started to use the church to expand his kingdom of God, that is eternal. It's life-giving. And that new life that comes is eternal. It cannot pass away. And that life-giving wind, that breath of God operates in you. Not just in you, but through you. To the places on this earth that needs life. This new life, this eternal life. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, life flows through you. It says in John 7, 38, Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Some say out of his bellies will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. And yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
But when the Holy Spirit came, came the power to give life. It symbolizes life. And life flows through each and every one of you. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, life flows through you. When you go to your hagwans, when you go to your schools, and these kids are depressed, these kids feel hopeless, life flows through you. When you have a friend that's sick, life flows through you. You have to claim that. That's what Holy Spirit gives us when he comes upon us. The first symbol of wind is life. The second symbol was fire. It was tongues of fire that sat upon the room. And many Christians, they look at this and they focus on tongues. You know? Because right after the experience, everybody started speaking in tongues. But the symbolism that's more important here is fire. It's the fire of God. John the Baptist said, I, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. You know, in the Old Testament, it actually symbolized God's presence. God revealed himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he had him cut up all these animals in half. And all of a sudden, the sleep came upon Abraham, this deep sleep. And he had this vision of this, this, this pot of fire and a flaming torch coming across the animals, making this covenant with Abraham. When Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal, you know, he poured water on this sacrifice. Water all over it. Not gasoline, not oil, but water. And he prayed, and then the fire of God came upon and consumed that sacrifice. The fire symbolizes the presence of God. But you know what? There's another symbol for fire that we don't really associate fire with in today's day, and it's light. Back in biblical times, back when in ancient times, they didn't have light bulbs that shine like this. They had the sun and they had fire. And fire was a, was, a, was a symbol for light. Fire brought light. And the Holy, when, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples at Pentecost, it brought light. It brought revelation, illumination. And it brought illumination to the truth of God. Everything started to make sense. They're like, wow. That's what he's been doing all this time. It's like that light bulb going, it's like that candle going above their head. Bing! Or whoosh. The Holy Spirit brought illumination of light. Revelation. Where the Holy Spirit shines, God's revelation follows. And without the Holy Spirit, there is no revelation. Holy Spirit came to shine God's light. His revelation for all who believe. It sheds light upon the truth of God. It's a, it's a revelation of God's truth. And what else does fire do? It warms us, right? When you're cold and you're out in the open and camping, what do you do? You light a fire. You build a fire. It brings warmth. In ancient days, you know, there's no heaters. If you built a fire, you were warm. If you did, if you couldn't, you were cold. You were out of luck. And many Christians say that when they experience God, they feel this warmth in their heart. John Wesley was a famous evangelist from the 1700s. He had this experience in this chapel in, in England. And he said that 
as he prayed and as he heard the gospel being spoken that day, his heart was strangely warm. And many Christians, they feel this warmth, this warmth that comes upon them when they hear the gospel. When the, when the truth of God enters you, they feel this warmth. The world that we live in not only lack, not, that is not only dark about the truth of God, but they're out in the cold. They are unloved. They are uncomforted. They fail to know the warmth of God's love. They don't know the fire of God that can warm their cold hearts to light. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, he kindles a spark. He starts a flame that grows and consumes the heart, consumes the soul, and ultimately it consumes the entire being. Because our God is a consuming fire. It's an all-consuming fire. Another characteristic of a fire that it burns. It burns and consumes everything it touches until it gets to the... It burns everything. Everything until it gets to metal. But what does it do to metal? Precious metal, what does it do? It melts it. It softens it. It makes it bendable. It makes it moldable. And when that consuming fire of God comes upon you and it burns away all the impurities, it burns away all the dross, it burns away all that crap that comes upon you from the enemy, when all that stuff is burned away, what's left is pure gold. And that gold gets heated by the fire of God. It becomes moldable and bendable. It becomes pliable. It becomes usable by God. And brothers and sisters, you want to be used by God, you got to be first consumed you got to first be consumed by the fire of God. And that fire that burns in you, another characteristic of fire is that it spreads. It spreads. When, you, when I light a fire here, eventually, if nobody puts it out, it's going to spread to this whole entire building. And that's the characteristic of the fire that God wanted the apostles to experience. That this fire that's coming, that's coming upon them, is not just to be contained inside of them. It's not just to be burned brightly in, yeah, I'm burning for God, I'm burning for God. But it's supposed to burn and it's supposed to spread. It's supposed to spread to the people that are around you. It's supposed to spread to the places that are dark. It's supposed to spread to the places that are cold. This fire that, the, that came upon them was supposed to spread. And it's supposed to fill this earth with the fire of God. Now, Pentecost was a powerful time. It was a special time when God gave birth to the church. The bride of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. But like I said before, it didn't end when Pentecost ended. And it's just beginning. It was just the beginning of God orchestrating this plan to save his people. God orchestrating this plan to raise up the bride of Christ. It was the beginning of God's breath, the new life going out into the world. It was the beginning of light and truth shining into the darkness. It was the beginning of the fire of God that only, that, that warms our hearts, that brings light, but that burns and consumes us and starts to spread around the world. It was just the beginning. And in Christ Jesus, our Lord, we become a part of what God started back in Pentecost. We are to go out and bring life. 
We are to go out and reveal truth. We are to go out and warm the hearts and set them on fire. And I want to ask you, are you living a life like this? Are you living a life where you're burning for God? Are you living a life where you're shining the light? Are you living a life that wherever you go, life follows? Because if you're not, I ask you, contend for it. Seek after it. You got to want it. You got to hunger for it. Like the apostles did in that room. They were crying out for it. They're like, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. They weren't playing with dreidels. They weren't playing. They weren't sitting around eating. But they were contending for it. Thank God, we need it. We need this. You say that we need it, so we want it now. Bring your Holy Spirit. You guys have to have that hunger in you. And when you hunger, when you hunger and thirst, God always satisfies. Let's pray. I'll close our eyes. Brothers and sisters, you guys got to want it. Like I said, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. If you have offense in your heart, it's not going to come. If you're holding bitterness in your heart, you can't let him in. But as you offer everything up to the Lord, as you offer everything up to the Lord and you open up your heart in humility, Holy Spirit will fill you up. Holy Spirit will fill you up. But you gotta, you gotta ask. You gotta cry out. You gotta want it. You gotta hunger for it. That hunger needs to be in you. You gotta say, God, I wanna burn for you. God, I want you to fill me up. God, I want to shine for you. So we pray, God, that today you will fill this place like you filled that room at Pentecost. Fill this place with the presence of your Holy Spirit, God. Fill this place with the the presence of your Holy Spirit. Come in us. Set us on fire for you, God. Set us on fire for you, God. Come breathe your spirit upon us. 